Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll chat to Newswhip about their incredible $13 million funding announcement. John Riley is going to review the new PlayStation virtual reality headset and we'll talk about the rise in femtech. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. But we're going to start this week with something that we're very, very excited about. And I think we've been talking about for about two years. We've not taken a breath since it was first teased. Uh, but we finally have our hands on the PSVR 2. And John Riley of TheEffect.net is with me now. John, happy talk about PSVR 2 day. Yeah, we, it's, it's all it's all allowed now. It's all legal or whatever. <laughs> yeah, because we were talking about it briefly on the Pat Kenny Show on Tuesday. And I was doing it. I was previewing the preview of the preview of the preview <laughs> yeah, I think is how we levels, phrased it yeah sorry multiple levels of embargoes yes yeah, but you and I have both had the device now for over a week yep I was very excited when it arrived in. It was genuinely Christmas in, in my apartment. Yeah. I could only, I was actually thinking of you, I was like, I bet you he is like <laughs> running rings around himself. Yeah. Um, so for those who don't know, let's just start at the very beginning. This is the second iteration of PlayStation's virtual reality headset. Not only were there going to be design tweaks, but there were also going to be a lot of performance tweaks. And we're going to get to the performance in a second. But let's talk about that actual unboxing experience and the hardware that you get. Yeah, so as you said, this is the second time Sony has entered the virtual reality market. You know, the first headset came out in 2016. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at seven years ago now, which is, you know, it's a big gap to go from one generation to the next. But that's given them a serious amount of time to really look at, you know, what the headset needs to be. So when you're taking it out of the box, you're, you know, in comparison to what we got back in 2016, which was quite a mess of cables and junction boxes and HDMI ports and everything else, that it was the definition, it was quite a pain. Like, yeah. there's no two ways about it. It looked ridiculous to set this thing up on, mm-hmm. on the PS4. Now, PS5 is out about just over two years. The new headset's about to launch on the 22nd and taking it out of the box, you get your headset, your two controllers and a ca- one single cable coming from the headset that goes directly into the front of the PlayStation 5 and Bob's your uncle, you're ready to go. Yeah, and I think the what I found in the week or so that I've been playing around with it is having fewer cables makes me more likely to pick it up. It makes me more likely to spend longer with it. Yep. And also more likely, and I don't know if I'm the only person that does that, but move it from the TV to we've got a nice computer monitor in the other room. So maybe you want to play in a different space yep. and it's less cumbersome to, to move the whole kit and caboodle yep. because you're not dragging half the house with you. Yeah, no, definitely. It's it's one, like 100, I have it sitting on a shelf in my apartment now and it's that single cable system that you just kind of, I just pull, pick up the headset when I'm going to want to play a VR game or test out one of the games and I carry it over to the couch or whatever and I pop it on with the controllers and I'm good to go. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, you could have had it set, the, the, the original headset set up, but when you ever wanted to move it, like you said, it was such Very a cumbersome. HDMI is going left, right and centre and it was just, yeah, it was too much of a pain. Like, I guess... So your listeners know for definite, this headset needs the PlayStation 5 to run. That it, you know, It's basically a, a, a display that you put on your head that connects to the console and the console does all the heavy lifting, basically. But that's not to say there's some impressive, there's not impressive tech in the headset either. So Yeah, I, I think the, um, 
there are there was a bit of confusion or some people I've seen you know emailing and texting in going can I use it with you know my PS4 or whatever yeah. so that's not the case as you said um, the other thing I really liked was the shape of the controller sensory things the handheld bits yeah basically the sense VR controllers here, the VR sense controllers yeah I can't remember what they were like on the old iteration but were they, they in were the, the palm of your hand? They were like the dome. They were the, like the the black sticks that were kind of inappropriate looking with the with the coloured uh, orbs. At I the remember top. that. Yeah, they were they were originally actually made to work with the Move camera, which was PlayStation's attempt at like the Wii or something the Wii, like exactly. that. Yeah. So these were like wands with little kind of colourful orbs at the top that kind of Sony retrofitted or jerry rigged to work with the VR. That's thing. right. Yeah. So they were never really. They were like a half step to what a right controller should have been for VR. So people, you never really got the full level of interactability or kind of. Uh, immersion with these kind of wand things that yeah. people were like oh, they weren't great now, now that you say that it comes back to me but I love the design of the new Sense controllers yeah. I think everything about both the headset and the controllers it's so intuitive as soon as you put the headset on and you put the controllers in your hands you're like okay I yeah. get like I feel I'm ready to go yeah. like I'm gaming yeah. rather than doing a dance with a baton in my living room <laughs> although you do look like you're doing a dance with a baton yeah. in your living room you still look a bit daft but hey ho it's one of the best kind of like setups you can, yeah, simple and uh, intuitive setups that you can get now in VR so they, they're really up there with the rest of the players like the HTC Vives the Oculus Quests and all that in terms of like getting you into the zone basically yeah. the VR kind of gaming stuff um, in terms of the setup and the gameplay that there are so many titles yeah. and this is what's exciting because I remember talking to you around the time of PSVR 1 and there weren't a whole host of titles we were kind of like waiting for the the, the tsunami of titles to come and yeah. that, that kind of didn't happen but yeah. um, there, there's plenty of games but what's different in terms of the headset and the experiences you get from PSVR 2 versus what we had before? Yeah so as I said it's been seven years so now they've really put in some incredibly future-proofed tech almost into this new headset so you know most VR headsets have impressive displays in the most modern ones, but, you know, Sony really have upped the ante with a kind of a 4K OLED panel uh, that does high dynamic range. You know, some of these things might be completely use- useless to, mm. to listeners, but it really just adds to that level of realism when you have the headset on your head. They've added something which sounds annoying, but actually works really well in gameplay is haptic feedback or basically a vibration motor in the headset. I didn't think I'd like that. Neither did I. But it's, I'm into it. Yeah, I thought it'd be a little like your phone strapped to your head and it'd be really kind of shallow and annoying. Yeah. But it's quite a shake to the point it feels like you're, you know, if you were in a, a kind of a bumpy car and your head rattles a bit against yeah. the window, you get a good, like it really adds kind of going, really adds to the level of immersion too. It, it really does. Because initially when I was going through, I was like, I, I, I think I said to you before and I think we ended up almost falling out about it, that I just wasn't into the VR yeah. thing. Because I, I wasn't fully immersed and then I also wanted to puke after 20 yes. minutes, right? Yeah. I found with the subtle things like the haptic feedback, uh, like the element of being able to see through yes. the headset, I was fully, like, I, I, I don't know, I kind of lost myself in the games a bit more. Now, I will say, it will, I'm sure we'll come to it, I still couldn't go too long wearing the headset without wanting to vom, but... <laughs> That it does feel lighter. The cables down your back because it's only one cable yeah. feels better. Yeah. The feedback to be able to see through. I think all in all, as a as a amateur gamer, I really enjoyed using it. Yeah, they've really just thought it out and kind of decided what works, what doesn't work, and have had that that time to see what other headsets have done and what kind of was successful. Mm. You mentioned that see through capability. It's basically using the four external cameras. These are like little 
basically like smartphone cameras, nice and small, sitting on either corner of the front of the headset. Yeah. If you see an image of it, you'll see what I'm saying, like four little eyes. This lets you kind of see through in black and white now, not in colour, but in, in black and white. 3D vision to see, as you said, you can see around you, pick up your controllers, see if you don't kick the dog by accident, that kind of thing. So it's that usability aspect is really, really beneficial. But for me, the actual thing that I found most exciting, most kind of like, now for less of a twee word, magical about Mm -hmm. the headset was the eye tracking. So you put on this headset, you're setting it up, you're scanning your room with those cameras on the outside to see where where your couch is and all that. And that's all kind of done with the Quest 2 and other VR headsets. But what they've done with the PSVR 2 is put a camera on the inside to track your eye eye movement. It sounds mental. But when you're setting this up and you're like darting around your your virtual screen in your headset, looking at the different colored dots, you're like, hold on. I'm doing. I'm not using any controller here. My eyes are doing this. I genuinely chuckled to myself. It's the future. It's this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And this is tech that's been implemented into some of the big titles that are launching. Then to kind of make them more impressive looking, more interactive. Again, more immerse. I, I, the whole time I was thinking, was it Zuckerberg who wanted to do the Neuralink thing, or was that that's Elon Musk? Elon, yeah, yeah. I, that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, oh my God, this is my, literally like my eyeballs are controlling what's happening. Because yeah. it's kind of like setting up the face ID on the iPhone, you know, when you move yes. your head around. Yeah. But it's just your eyeballs. Yeah, you're literally looking around a coloured dot. And then as I said, yeah, it, it just kind of goes, it just adds a whole other interactive, you know, functionality to the game that you can go. It feels more real. Yeah. Because as I'm talking to you now, I can shoot my eyes to the left and I can see out to the Newstock office and I can shoot to the right next to the Newstock sign, but my head is still looking at you, like yeah. facing you. Yeah. It's a very naturalistic thing, whereas I think maybe previous iterations not just of the PlayStation VR but other VR you kind of have to swivel your Your body body, and you have to kind of get into it it just feels and even the subtle touches that you can make with your with your hands as well I feel like the sensitivity yeah it's is pretty nailed in terms of reality. Yes, it's really heightened to the <clears> point that it feels second nature that, you know, like you're talking to a character in a game and then the little kind of uh, text box options pop up like any other kind of game where, you're talk- where you decide what you want to say next. And instead of like using the controller, you just look at the words going, I'll say that. And you just hit select. Yeah. So you get to se- like you just look at the words you want to say and select them. Mm. Again, it's, it's kind of hard to convey like anything in virtual reality. Is, you know, we can talk about it for days, but until you actually experience it, you can see the, the level of immersion it adds over everything else I've experienced anyway. Did you feel sick while playing? Uh, there was one game that I want to give a shout out to that's actually not a game. It's more like an, um, a virtual experience called Kayak VR yes. Mirage. Did you play that? I broke a glass to that. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's so on the desk good. and I went whack. Yeah. Like that game now, I'm not great. Like ironically, you say you get sick, people get, you know, you get sea legs. Yeah. You have to get your sea legs. I'm not good on boats. Yeah. Or any kind of small vessel. But in VR, I'm actually okay with all this kind of free movement and looking around and some people find that a bit much. Yeah. But I've kind of got there that I'm able to do that. But for whatever reason, I think I was playing a bit too long and I got into the kayak in this virtual reality game a stunning looking game originally on PC or whatever but now on the PSVR 2 and the guys are great what they've done here um, I got into the kayak and you use the, the controllers as if you're doing a big paddle or can, uh, you're canoeing down or the kayaking down whatever bit of river and I was like so the, the kayak is bobbing and yeah. I'm like but my body isn't and I'm like oh I'm getting a bit warm here <laughs> it's trick it, it, it's kind of like a trip like your yeah. brain is a bit like what's happening because yeah. my body is still uh, it's a great workout that game yeah it is yeah literally cause your I, arms are hanging off you by the end <laughs> if you're like as vigorously kayaking down yeah, an imaginary I, river as I, I was I almost think there's a third party attachment I think you could you could actually get like a mini 
thing to attach your controllers to. A mini oar, yeah. A mini oar, a mini paddle board that you could, you'd sit there in your sitting room just paddling away, going around like Costa Rica or the Antarctica. Like there was one bit I was on a, there was like a storm setting in Norway, in the fjords in Norway. And like the water is hitting, the rain is hitting the water and the thunder is rolling and you're like, oh my God, it's like I'm, it was so immersive. Yeah. It's incredible. I find stuff like that really exciting because as you know, I'm not really into the pew pew bang bang type games. I like the experience type games yeah. and before anyone tweets or puts up on boards that I don't go outside, I do go outside, but I just <laughs> like experiencing games where it's an experience yeah. rather than just killing someone, right? Yeah. And that's why I loved that game because you just feel like, oh, I'm doing something. Yeah. And you, you could never necessarily do like this. You're, as I said, Costa Rica, you're kayaking around the jungle. And, and it's just like so lovely, like, but it's beautifully yeah, done. The, 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 like this is where the eye tracking comes in because as you're playing the game, the camera is tracking your eyes and it uses a, a, a technical uh, capability called foveated rendering, which basically says, John's looking over here. There's no need to focus on all the, all the massive beach, you know, the, the trees in the jungle and over to the left because he's not looking at that. So we can take some of the graphical power from there and put it right in front of his eyes. So the trees and the beach in front of his eyes look incredible. Mm. And the second he looks over back at the beach, it's we'll, give the, we'll yeah. give the graphics over there. So It's so impressive when you think about like yeah. what's going on in the background that the majority of people would never pick up on. Yeah. But you get to experience the benefit of it. Yeah. it like it is mind blowing. Um, we're going to have to have you back in a few weeks to talk through some of the games yeah. because I have I've uh, almost got all of them ready to go in terms of downloads or all the rest. But there are so many titles already uh, being made available. I know that there are other titles that uh, you can have a VR update for. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't available until just a few days ago. So. Yeah, so the, it's kind of now as we're coming up to the launch on the 22nd, a lot of the, the developers are pushing their updates or even they'll be the day before the launch. So there's a bit of a mishmash of what exactly is available now, when it'll be available, will it be a free upgrade? Uh, some of them you might have to pay a minimum, um, a nominal fee to mm. kind of bump it up to the PSVR 2 version. So each each developer is kind of playing their own cards of how they want to kind of play that out. Um. Before we talk through in a few weeks time about the gaming titles, the killer question is, is it worth the money? People have asked me that a lot over the last day or two since our review went live. And look, I'm going to say yes, because I'm a huge gamer. It was Christmas Day when it came into my house. But, you know, there's 32 million PS5s out there now, give or take. And a lot of people, you know, were lucky to get them at launch and throughout the last couple of years. They're much more accessible now to the point that Sony's actually focusing a lot of their marketing on that news rather than the actual VR headset. They're saying, look at PS5 is now available. If you go into a store, you're a hell of a lot. You can get one. You can get one after (laughs) two years. I know, the look. But when it comes to the PSVR 2, we haven't actually commented on the price, which is 600 euro. Pretty big. It's pretty big. It's actually more expensive than a PS5 console that it's needed needed to power it. So that's a that's a spicy meatball, as I say, for a virtual reality mm. headset. And then on top of that, you're paying for titles which are getting increasingly more expensive, like the 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 kind of the flagship title, Horizon VR, Call of the Mountain, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But Jesus, that's good. Um, I don't know if you've played that one. No. That's just that's kind of based on the Horizon games, which I'm a big fan of. Anyways, mm. the kind of the redheaded woman fighting the the robotic T Rexes and all that. Yeah. It's all kind of uh, post-apocalyptic. But anyways, it's a VR title. It's the showpiece title. It's seventy quid, but it's worth it because it really shows everything the headset can do. But um, but it's just, it all adds up. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. 
that like say for example if you were living at home and all your brothers were living at home yeah. and you could all chip in and spit it between you yeah. like that now I'm sure there'd be murder trying to get <laughs> hands on it and all the rest but it is that kind of expense where you'd either need to love your gaming the yeah. way you love your gaming yeah. or be spitting the cut co- like I don't know as much as I've enjoyed it and as much as I'm delighted to have it now my partner would probably say something different but yeah. I don't know that I would spend 600 quid yeah I would because as he said I'm a gamer but then for other people that are on the fence I might recommend you just hold out to maybe Christmas when more exclusives because right now a lot of the titles that have launched or will be launching for its launch window are about 30 or 40 or so which is a lot are available elsewhere so other gamers might have had them on the Quest 2 or on PC VR whereas the ones that are limited only to the PS VR 2 there's about three or four or five like really mm. so that's small in a certain aspect so if you kind of have the patience and you don't need to play the new you know the Horizon game I mentioned immediately you can wait a couple of months even up to the Christmas window with rumours flying around that you know more exclusives will be announced down, which we, you'd like to expect or imagine yeah, you'd, such an you'd hope so because yeah. Jesus it'll be expensive if they don't keep you know because that's really going to make or break it like mm-hmm. any kind of piece of hardware it's the software that's going to yeah. get it over the line and get it continually you know being successful throughout the years so yeah yeah I think you know the reviews are going to give it you know, I, our review is live on the site and it's comprehensive and it took me a good while to get it into it but it's it kind of covers as much as I can and it's I think it's worth it because it's it's such an incredible step up for VR but and all the other outlets I think are going to be saying the same thing so it's going to be hard to kind of have that patience but if you can and again it's financially focused like if, if you don't have 600 quid lying around you don't have a line around yeah it's not a need thing no no like if you have a PS5 you're doing very very well exactly and it's it's a thing of it's it's an add-on for your gaming experience and yes it does enhance and yes it does augment what's possible yeah but uh, I don't know. Go and read John's review right now. Theeffect.net. The full thing is there. Uh, we will have you back in a few weeks yep. to test some of those games. I would love to hear from you. Are you going to get one? And what games do you want us to talk about? If you've seen demos or uh, trailers on YouTube, email techtalk at newstalk.com and we will work our way through that list. Uh, John, thanks as always. No worries. Cheers, Jess. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, a few months back, we heard from my next guest about the work he and his team are doing to identify trends and key topics in the world of news, which is no easy feat in the era of social media and fake news. This week, however, they had some incredible news of their own uh, by securing $13 million in funding. Paul Quigley is the CEO of Newswhip and he joins me now. Paul, I'm delighted to have you on the show this week because it is huge news. It's great news. Uh, before we get into the announcement, though, just remind us what exactly it is that you, you and your team do. So Newswhip is a predictive media monitoring technology, and that sounds like a mouthful. Um, what we do is we track every news story and social media post as it appears, and we very quickly monitor how much engagement that means likes, shares, comments, retweets, uh, any given story or idea is getting. And we uh, give journalists and also people who work in communications a real-time picture of which stories and events are kind of shaping up in the world today, getting people's attention and and getting engagement. And um, the the core there, the use case for journalists is to know, you know what our audience is interested in today and to factor that in sometimes on into decisions on, on, on reporting and what to cover. And for communicators, it's a whole range of different things to understand if there's an opportunity, if there's a crisis, 
and whether and how to respond to something or even whether to respond to something at all. Yeah, it's become a vital tool in so many newsrooms around the world already. Uh, Talk to me about the decision to go after funding and what that thought process is, because, you know, in the past I've met companies who have told me that it's a bit of a, not a dilemma, but a, a bit of a debate, I suppose, internally in terms of opening yourselves up and looking for funding. And obviously you guys have secured 13 million, so that's no small amount. How do you go about finding the right partner for something like that? Yeah, so we haven't taken on new funding since 2016, Jess. So we've been focused on building a solid business on revenue rather than on venture dollars, which can go away, uh, as they certainly have in a big way in the last 12, 18 months. And we've been building up a good book of business and focused on on, on building a real um, solid foundation of of the Newswhip business. And our recurring revenue now is above the $10 million uh, mark in terms of subscription revenue to our tools. But uh, at the same time, we see this huge opportunity, this peculiar technology we built to be really real time and predictive about the spread of news and ideas has been getting more and more pickup with big global brands like Coke or um, Ford or or Google or uh, or even Meta themselves. And we see this great opportunity. We see a few more things we want to build into the tools and a really rich vein that we can tap into in terms of the value we can provide if we can get better at a few things. Um, so it just looks like it's time to invest um, so we can go and capture this opportunity because we're really in pole position to go after it. So having focused on building the business for a while, it's now shifting gears and really getting into investment and growth mode. And securing $13 million, that's no small amount. Um, How do you go about finding the right partner for something like that? It's a good question. Uh, It can be helpful at our stage to have an advisor. We worked with an advisor in Dublin called Pegasus, and we looked at the profile of what what our company is and who wants to back a company like us at this point in time. Um, You know, we've been around nine years now. So it's less like a venture capital early stage type funder. uh, That's a good fit for us. Um, And what we saw is that because we have a really substantial revenue base and we've been operating out of around break even, um, the kind of long, longer term debt can be a good option because it means that you, um, you don't dilute existing shareholders. There's still potentially very good outcome, but you've got the solid business that a lender likes to see as well. So um, having looked at a lot of different options, that's that's the way we went in the end. Was there ever a fear, given what it is that you do, that, you know, a partner could come on board and maybe interfere or have nefarious motives for wanting to work with you and support the work that you do? We've, I think we've always been both fortunate and and maybe also careful about who, who our investor base is and even who we do business with. Um, you know, or tools that can track and predict what's happening in real time um, can be used for for good and bad. So we're careful about that. And we're also, with any investor who we're speaking to, you're, you're also doing your own background checks and you're talking to other entrepreneurs they've backed and you, you, you're feeling the vibes and what they say and what questions they're asking to try and get a sense of, of, of what they'd want and, and who they are. And we think with Ashgrove, we've actually found people who are, you know, a fund that are very entrepreneurial themselves. Um, so, you know, it's finance guys who are wearing jeans instead of instead of uh, suits and who 
um, asked a lot of smart questions about our opportunity and we're very bought in on the on the potential of the business as well. Mm. What does this funding mean from a business point of view? Uh, like what can it unlock for you in terms of opportunities and growth? Well, the, the big opportunity, where we're going to be placing our bets, a lot of it is into product investment. So what we're doing today is we're very good at ingesting news stories and social media as it's published and tracking and taking each unit and showing which direction it's going in. And what we've been getting better at is summarizing that information. So you can see in a graph public interest in anything over time, media interest in something over the course of a day or hours. And we want to get better at providing insights that summarize and just tell people what they need to know. Because a lot of the comms professionals who work inside a big brand, they can be a bit overwhelmed. Like Google gets tens of thousands of media mentions every day. So we're already we're very good at separating the signal from the noise, but the better we can summarize and get smart at saying, hey, here's something you might want to pay attention to. This is a local news story in Arizona, but for some reason it's got 10,000 engagements and, you know, and it's got a negative sentiment uh, about your company and, you know, maybe some other elements that we could learn and be good at highlighting for our users. So a lot of this is about both bringing in new data sources, improving our engineering um, our infrastructure so we can deliver information where and when it's needed and also summarizing that information in useful ways. You mentioned there about having a large subscriber base, which is obviously fantastic. Um, and it is a tool that's used in newsrooms and other business rooms, I suppose, around the world. Uh, has there been any impact as a result of the tightening of the belt in the tech world and other organisations in recent times? You know, are people looking at the software that they're paying for and going, maybe we could do without this? Or have you built yourself into that corner where you're now a vital utility for a lot of the companies that you're working with? Yeah, like we once we're embedded in an organization, we have really, really high retention, much higher than most kind of companies that do some kind of media monitoring or social listening. And that's because when people have got used to this real time picture of what they need to pay attention to and not, it's very hard to take it away. You're going back to, you know, here's what happened 12 hours ago and the kind of things that traditional media monitoring tools provide. And it's so we have very good retention, even in a down cycle. What's hard is to tell the story um, to people in comms to say, hey, we know you've got this. You think you know what media monitoring can do, but there's a whole new world that's possible. And that's very much a storytelling challenge, a go-to-market challenge, and a kind of sales process challenge, uh, and as well as our product, making it easier and easier for people to quickly see the light and see how useful it can be in their work. So you know, what we, where we'd see the challenge would probably be in new business and getting people's attention. And fortunately, we're a time saver. We, you know, our work with, with Co Globally saves people a lot of time. It saves companies money. So we'll probably be emphasizing that a little bit more going into 2023. One of the things we spoke about on the show last week with Kira O'Brien, and I also spoke to someone at Intercom about it a while ago, was the rise of ChatGPT and Google's Bard and a lot of these sort of AI bot things that are coming to the fore. Uh, one of the selling points, I suppose, is that it helps people find information they're actually looking for. Uh, but is that type is that type of technology going to be beneficial for your business model? And is that something that you've looked at? It's it it could be uh, like we're doing some summarization already. Like um, if you log into a Spike dashboard, you can you know some little uh, and you've put in a search like I put in a search for 
Coca-Cola or World Cup or Super Bowl. And we'll be saying, hey, this engagement is up from last week, like some simple summarization information will be there. We're not at a chat GPT level of, of um, uh, kind of text summarization, NLP. The, there's probably is applications here, but um, what we don't want is a lot of kind of clever text that might be right or wrong. People rely on our tools for precision, really good summaries of exactly what's happening. So, you know, ChatGPT is, is, is famous for kind of sounding very confident, sometimes getting things right, sometimes getting things wrong, summarizing things pretty well. So I think that's the kind of technology we could layer into what we do, but you'd need it. You, you'd need to make sure you're retaining the level of accuracy that our, that our users want. Yeah, and that's one thing I touched upon with Kira last week. And it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit, actually with you guys in mind, is that, you know, we're getting more of these tools to tell us stuff. But if there's stuff isn't right, then it's just noise in a new way in terms of delivery. Uh, I think it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's um, like... We were very focused on giving very precise information and useful summaries and insights about the real world outside. And I mean, there's still great NLP applications there. Um, but sometimes that information is just best summarized on a graph or mm -hmm. it's best summarized in a way where it's easy for people to click through and see what's driving the claim you're making. So you say, hey, engagement is up this week. The way, the way we build our product, we want to be able to click on that statement almost and see, well, all right, what are the stories? Okay, it's those news stories. Well, which one's got the most engagement? Let's click in there. Okay, well, which Twitter accounts for sharing those? Because maybe that will tell us about more. So we like uh, quite an exploratory platform. We have the surface information, but we want to be able to serve people who want to go deep and really understand what's happening. So there may be a, a path to bring the best of both worlds together there. In terms of the delivery of that information, because I agree, I think it can. it's always important to see sources and to be able to verify that the information given to you is correct. Um, but have you looked at other mediums? I don't know whether, you know, how viable it would be, but in terms of sound bites or videos, or is it still easier, not easier, but is it still the best method, I suppose, to present the information the way that you are doing it? I mean, it's, we think a lot about the information delivery at the right time to the right person. And uh, what we've seen explode is the use of our email digests and email alerts. And what that looks like is a company like Coke or, 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 or Google will set up alerts for media and a country on a topic they're interested in, like the World Cup was very big for Coke as a sponsor this year. And they want a little digest of what are the most shared and talked about stories and maybe Facebook posts, public Facebook posts. And, um, and they, but they also want to be alerted if something is kicking off. So uh, the most important thing really is then that they don't need to be logging in and exploring and checking a dashboard every hour or every half hour. That, that information gets pushed to them at the right time. So we think in terms of our customers and value delivery, that's the thing that we really want to get right is the delivery of the information and the formats might be different and maybe the email comes and you can click and it will take you into spike or real-time platform and you can explore and see what's driving it but a lot of the time those email alerts people just read them and they know everything is fine and they get back to work uh, so you don't need to have too much information there as well in terms of your staff uh, just remind us about the types of people that are working for you are they you know uh, engineers are they journalists are they people out of college what sort of mix do you have 
Uh, we have really wonderful people, Jess, is the first thing I'd say. Uh, we've been hiring um, always with a view to finding people who are very smart, competent, um, trustworthy, who are builders and, and, and creators. So, you know, that can be people who are pretty fresh out of college and people who are older too. There's a kind of a vibe of cooperation, supporting our clients and building something cool and unique together. And um, in terms of the kind of roles that we're hiring in, in Ireland, there's it's, it's engineering and design roles currently. So product design and front end and back end engineering roles, uh, internet. And there's also going to be uh, some sales roles internationally that we're looking at. Uh, we're going to be building out a little bit more. Um, that's a bit more weighted to, towards New York and our customer success team is a bit more weighted towards the US generally because that's where most of the uh, our biggest customer base is. Well, look, it is great news and it's great to see you guys going from strength to strength. I'm very excited to see what you do next. Uh, Paul Quigley, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Real, real pleasure, Jess. Thanks very much for having me. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll hear about the long-awaited rise of Femtech. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Uh, before the break, we heard from Paul Quigley of Newswhip. If you want to know more about what the company does and how they do it, particularly in the era of misinformation, head on over to the News Talk app right now. Search for Tech Talk or wherever you get your podcasts, search for Tech Talk. And if you have a scroll back, you'll find an interview with Paul a few months ago where we talked about not only what they do, but how they do it. And it is fascinating. Uh, So that is something else to do when this programme is over in about 15 minutes or so. Uh, But right now we're going to talk about Femtech, which is a term that you may not have heard of before, but... Thankfully, it's on the rise. Uh, Dr. Tanya Mulcahy is the director of Health Innovation Hub Ireland and is the founder of Femtech at HIHI. Tanya, you're very welcome to the show. Um, Before we talk through Femtech specifically, can you just tell me a little bit about the Femtech Hub? Yeah, so um, Femtech Hub is really bringing together the ecosystem that is essential to developing technology that addresses women's health issues. So um, it's an initiative of, of Health Innovation of Ireland, and we're really about uh, supporting startups in the space of women's health, um, but bringing together the people that are required to make sure that they work. So clinicians, researchers, but also women themselves uh, to support that startup community and help develop the best products. One of the things that we've identified or that has been identified over the years is that issues relating to women's health and women's well-being and I suppose women's existence in general uh, have not quite got the same focus and attention and development as other issues relating to either more general population or to men. Why is that and are we seeing a bit of a change? Yeah, well... First of all, yes, we are seeing a change, which is great. And I'll come to that in a minute. But why we're seeing that, and there's a really, really basic reason for this. Um, most of the research that was done in, in science and medicine has been done and, and in technology development was done on the man, the male, and particularly a white Caucasian male, um, with the assumption that everyone else was only a little bit different or almost the same as that white Caucasian male. And we know that's not true. Um, the second thing is, is that Uh, women were excluded from clinical trials uh, up as late as the mid-1970s, which is amazing, really. Sorry, the mid-1990s. And and that's because they felt that hormones, fluctuating hormones might 
interfere with the results of clinical trials, which if you think about it is insane because the truth is hormones do um, change the way uh, drugs work in our system, but hormones are always fluctuating in women. So there's a big difference there and women should be, and luckily now are being included in that research. But um, another thing was really, I suppose, and, and, and this is significant is that, you know, in the development of tech companies and tech products, up until recently, really, most of those boardrooms were populated by men. And it's very difficult for a woman to come in or a founder to come in and talk about, you know, menstruation, um, menopause, bleeding, vaginas, whatever you want to talk about, to a boardroom full of men and convince them that it's a product worth developing. So that is also changing. And what's really happening now is with the advancements of technology, women are saying, yeah, it works, but I want it to work for me as a woman. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of work still to be done on women's health, understanding it, what underpins, what the differences that we have compared to men, and then developing products to address the problems that we face. So it's changing. Women are speaking up, but women are also developing those products now because they don't exist. And to be a bit crass about it, I mean, there's money in this, isn't there? Like, you know, we're, we're half the population, if not more. We're consumers, we buy products, we subscribe to apps and services, we do all of those things. So the business case is there for products and services to be available. Well, that's why we have an explosion in this space now, Jess, because what's happened is uh, investors have realized that one, yes, 50% of the population and two, actually women make up 70% of all household purchase decisions. So they have a lot of buying power and this market has grown rapidly. Um, the, the word femtech was only first used in 2016. And since then, um, the market, like the, the, the market last year in the US was 5.1 billion euro dollars. And that's growing rapidly. So 10, 20% increase every year on that market value. When we talk about femtech, is it all to do with hormone health and fertility? No. Um, so there's a lot of focus on sort of areas that are really affecting women at the moment that they feel that they need support in. So if you if you, if you track what's going on in the women's lifespan, I suppose, um, areas that uh, affect people are fertility, uh, menstruation, um, then you come into general gynecological issues and um, I suppose uh, pregnancy, childbirth, uh, perimenopause, menopause, but there's also areas, so they all have you know, for, you know, hormonal issues with them, but there are lifestyle changes that can be made, but there's also areas that affect women disproportionately to men. So bone health is really important. Again, underpinned by, by hormones, but you know, there's a lot you can do with technology. Um, uh, areas like breast cancer, um, dementia, dementia affects women more than does men. So there's a, there are a lot of areas that we need to be looking at and using technology to monitor, to improve and to impact. And in terms of what the sort of femtech scene here is in Ireland, are we in line with the global trend in terms of the focus on this area or the increased focus on this area? So I suppose where we came about and why we set up this femtech initiative is, is um Really, over the last two years, we have seen an increase in the number of companies, startups in particular, coming to us looking for support to develop their products. And how we support them is we link them in with clinical teams or maybe um, patients or end users. We're very much closely linked with the Ireland South Women's and Infants Directorate here because I'm based in UCC and the hospital uh, here would have ac give us access to all those um, experts. And we found it easy to actually support them because of that relationship. And then after a while, I realized that, you know, people were really interested in developing products in this space, but that in Ireland, we hadn't actually put a label on it. 
And when I looked at what was going on internationally, I mean, there has been, um, you just Google Femtech and there is so much going on in that space that we we put sort of a label on what's going on in Ireland. So we've the Femtech label is there. We're getting companies to sign up and put themselves on the Irish map. We have about 17 companies now signed up and I know there are more out there. Um, and we're also trying to kind of link in the research that's going on in the universities, huge amount of research going on, but linking that into what's happening in, in the development technology is important. So um, we're hoping to bring out a report just saying what's going on in Ireland and really spotlighting that Ireland is, is actually up there developing technology that space and we, we can play a part on the world stage. So um, I'm hoping that a year or two years from now, we're going to see Ireland as being really a hotspot for femtech development worldwide. I don't know if I just have my cynical hat on today, but does the notion still exist of femtech equals cycle tracking and that's the height of it? Or is it difficult for some of these startups to get coverage because there's still, I don't know, a discomfort when it comes to talking about periods or menopause or whatever it might be? So I think what we're seeing, if you look at what's happening everywhere, like in Ireland and in all areas, there, there is a call to have more women on boards. So I think that's really important because it makes it easier for women to go in and talk about you know period tracking or menstruation but but i like things are changing where we're talking about medical devices and technology together so you know we're working with a company that's developing a tool a product that impacts the cells uh, for vaginal atrophy something that affects a huge proportion of of menopausal women and we don't even talk about it so that conversation is changing and now we're talking about this which means everyone is going to have to be comfortable with these words. We're, we're going to use them more and more. And I think it's up to all of us to say that. Um, yeah, I mean, there are other things going on, like, yes, cycle tracking has been the, the focus up until now. But in the last five years, um, that's changed. So um, there are devices to improve, improve sexual health uh, in women because, you know, not everybody knows this, but uh, women often are impacted by negatively and sexual health is negatively impacted as a result of menopause. So there are products in, in that space that are being developed and we're going to have to talk about it. Um, a company recently in outside of Ireland, but I just really interesting to see it have developed um, a, basically a strip, just a, a bit like, you know, you would use for COVID, but a, a diagnostic strip that would be used in menstrual pads for detecting HPV virus. So there's so many opportunities out there. And I think the more and more people start peeling back the layers we're going to see it moving away from just fertility and hormone tracking to um, devices that really make an impact on issues and problems that women are facing today. And if I understand this correctly, the overall benefit is that it will have a wider positive impact on the health service in general, because, you know, we've heard from people at the HSC and other healthcare givers that, you know, it's all about trying to keep well people well for longer and empowering people with this information. So surely if we have devices and services that can give women better insights as to what's going on with their bodies, why and what they can do about it, it will take, I suppose, some of the strain off the health service because I've read reports and studies in the past that show that, you know, even today, it's very easy or it happens quite often that women go into the doctor and just get diagnosed with a blanket term uh, anxiety Whereas it could be something entirely unrelated to anxiety, but it doesn't even get investigated. Yeah, no, that's completely true. And I think the problem is, is that we aren't able to kind of a lot of the, a lot of it is is anecdotal. So someone say, I think I'm feeling this way because there's no definitive test for certain conditions. 
um, that are impacted by hormones and that women are experiencing. So, I mean, an example, the more you know about your health and the more it is tied to what is normal for a woman, then you can identify problems and attend earlier. Or if it's normal, but it's abnormal on the male scale, if you know what I mean. So if you're, for example, um, if you're tracking your heart rate and um, it changes uh, with a the male, there'd probably be the sign that you need to go and talk to your, your GP. But with a woman, it could be the stage of your cycle. It's normal for your heart rate to change just at that stage. So there's no need to attend a doctor and get stressed out about it. We don't know enough about all, all these things in women. So I'm going to give you an example of a, of it's a US company, but they have a, a research lab actually based here in Cork and they've developed a ring called the EV ring and it's it's tracking a lot like the fitness trackers so it's doing heart rate it's doing oxygen levels it's doing mobility it's also tying it into fertility uh, tracking and that but the results or the information that's gathered in that is related to the woman rather than the general population so it can tell you what's normal and abnormal and I think that's what's going to help keep people out of hospitals or out of clinics when they don't need to be there if you understand your health better as a woman. Um, I also think, I mean, there's some conditions. So example, endometriosis, people are, are waiting 10 years for diagnosis. If we can speed up diagnosis um, using technology and using these devices, those women will be treated earlier and it'll be less of a burden on the healthcare system in the long run. So there's a lot that these products can do. A lot of them are aimed at the consumer at home, but I think we're gonna see more and more of them developed so that there's a link between the consumer and the clinician and we can treat women's problems earlier and better. We know that we've got a huge tech base here in Ireland. Have you engaged with some of those more established big tech companies in terms of seeking whether it's mentorship or advice or partnership when it comes to these startups? So in terms, we, we, we do engage with a lot of the startups, but if you're talking about the larger companies, we're reaching out now at the moment to engage with the predominantly the pharmaceutical companies and the, the larger med tech companies. They're interested uh, in what's happening in femtech, but they're a little bit um, sort of on the periphery at the moment, watching to see what's coming. But I'd really like them to be more involved because I think we need to offer technology along with um, treatment at the same time to to ensure we get the best outcomes. So uh, this time next year, I'll have a chat with you about all the big companies that are supporting all these startups. Great stuff. Well, if there's a startup listening to this now, or if there's somebody who's looking to get into this space, is there a way for them to reach out to you and get involved or seek advice or a bit of nurturing that may be needed at those early days of startup? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, I mean, what we're planning to do is networking events to get people together to get give advice, but also and to put mentors in place for these companies. But if anyone wants to get in touch with us, um, if you just go to the Health Innovation Hub website, so that's hihi.ie, you'll find a Femtech page and you can sign up there and we'll get in touch. Um, as I said, we have already got 18 startups uh, that we've supported already by doing pilot studies or research studies with them. And that is going to go rapidly. Brilliant. Well, look, it is so good to see something like this coming to the fore here in Ireland and we will book it in to have a chat this time next year to see the progress that's being made. But it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, Dr. Tanya Mulcahy, thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, William Jess. Appreciate that.